Welcome to the On Target Living Podcast, a place where health and human performance meet. I'm really excited. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Bland, and it would take me about the whole show to read his full bio, but a couple of things that I took out of it is he's one of the leading authorities on nutrition, nutritional science. And as a scientist, um, he was the father of functional medicine, and we'll get into what functional medicine is and how that came about. Um, as a biochemist by training, he holds dual degrees, chemistry and biology from California, Irvine, and com uh, completed his PhD in organic chemistry from the University of Oregon. Um, he founded the Institute of Functional Medicine in 1991. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. And he co-founded co or founded the uh, Personalized Medicine Institute, PLMI, in 2012. Countless articles, books, lectures, interviews. He's one of the highest, uh, the hardest person to get to interview right now because of the conversation. So I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bland. And today I wanted to focus on nutrition and its role with the immune system the nervous system, the, the offense that we can all play and, and what this means to the future of really medicine and what we can prevent. So my first question, uh, Dr. Bland, after I thank you again for joining us is what made you go into this field? What got you interested about nutrition? Well, I guess I'd have to really give credit to my, first of all, thanks a million for the opportunity to speak with you, Matt. I'm, I'm, I'm very much appreciative of that. But uh, to answer your question, um, my, I have a sister, uh, just uh, one sister, no brothers. And she and I were raised by a mother who was an extraordinary advocate uh, for nutrition. And, and actually her mother, my grandmother, uh, who uh, was in Hollywood, California back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, was quite a revolutionary woman in her own right. When I think back, uh, she probably was a, a predecessor of the women's liberation movement because she's a very strong personality. Sure. And she didn't like the way that drugs were being used in medicine and uh, felt that this was not the solution to health problems. And so she in the 20s and 30s was seeing a naturopathic physician in Hollywood, California. And this is way before naturopathic medicine was even probably understood at all in, in American culture. Uh, and so my mother obviously then was, uh, was influenced by her mother and, and, and uh, going to a naturopath as a, as a young girl. And so she, they very were strong on this whole concept of nutrition and, and its relationship to health. So my sister and I, um, we couldn't escape. We were the, uh, the next generation along online. And so in our, in our house, the way we grew up, and my sister and I now kind of laugh about this at times, that we had no, no white bread, we had no soft drinks, we had no desserts, we had no processed foods, um, we had no sugar materials. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends thought that we were abused by our, my mother because we didn't have access to all the other stuff they had access to. And, you know, our school lunch bags were always having the fresh vegetables and fruits in it. And everyone else was the uh, eating at the cafeteria. And so it, it was that upbringing uh, that I think got me started. And then what happened, and it's kind of humorous, when I eventually went on uh, to medical school and then finally got my Ph.D., when I would come home uh, to visit my parents, 
my mother would always ask me, well, what am I learning? And, and I would, you know, I was very excited about what I was learning. I thought it was really uh, interesting and that she was, uh, would be interested. And so I'd start telling her and then she would invariably interrupt me and she would say, well, that, that's very good. I'm glad you're learning that, but what are you learning about nutrition? <laughs> and, and I would say, well, you know, we're, we're really not learning about nutrition. And she and then she'd have this very discouraged look on her face and she'd say, well, you know, isn't there a place where you're going to learn something that's really important, like right. nutrition? Sure. Well, of course, the answer was really no. In a medical school training and in a PhD training, um, even in biochemistry, uh, there is really very superficial discussion about nutrition. So I think it was that particular uh, early stage series of events that epigenetically modified me. And then uh, when I did finally get an academic position, became a professor um, uh, in 1970, uh, I, my first uh, graduate student uh, was going to go on and do his uh, postgraduate work with me, uh, was a gentleman who said that he wanted to study vitamin E. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, I really know nothing about vitamin E. I'm, I'm a biochemist that doesn't have much expertise in that area. But he was very, very excited about vitamin E. This is 1970. was much in the news back then. Sure. And so um, to make a long story short, uh, I chose him then to, to be a, a, my first research student. We then went out and wrote a, a research project around vitamin E, which just turned out to be very lucky that we were made some really very interesting discoveries. They became highly publicized in the scientific literature. That then became very uh, picked up by the, the general news. And um, uh, one Saturday morning, this would have been 1974, I was uh, with my young sons at the time going through the supermarket checkout because I did the Saturday shopping. That was my responsibility for the week and for the family. And so we were waiting in line to check out at the grocery store. And, you know, there are all the tabloids hanging in the rack by the checkout. And I'm waiting and I look over and I see uh, one of the tabloids has a headline on it saying, university professor finds secret to aging. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. And so I pulled it out of the rack to look at, and there was my picture in the laboratory I was the university professor that they were talking about. I don't even know they had, how they got the photo. And um, they were talking about our vitamin E research and, wow. and extending the lifespan of red cells. And, um, and so that was kind of a, 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 a moment of change because you can imagine the number of calls that our chemistry department got from people around the country wondering what wow. was going on. And, and suddenly, you know, I was thrust into a whole different situation of having to decide whether I was just going to pull back and be a traditional chemistry instructor or I was going to kind of follow through and learn more about this and, and be able to better provide information. So that, that was a change. That's unbelievable. We got to find that art. We got to find that tabloid. We got to well, dust it, that. It, it's, it is floating around because periodically it's, it's hilarious. Now think of the year since 1974, yeah. I will have people send me a kind of a, copy version of it that's all kind of tattered and sure. here's this university professor and at that point remember it was the 70s and i was younger i had this huge red beard this big bouffant uh, <laughs> red hairdo and these eyes kind of stuck down into this red uh, woodsman looking pacific northwest arc we gotta here. we gotta find that that's yeah that's i mean i relate to that a lot i mean our, my twin sister and i grew up with this health guru that drove a frito-lay truck 
And so, you know, during graduate school, he was going to school to pay for having twins and school. And that was his job. But, um, you know, we were tested upon with the, the mac organic macaroni and cheese that tastes like cardboard and <laughs> we're having goat's milk. And so, yeah, I could relate a lot to that. That's, um, I think I always like to know how someone got started because 35 plus 40 years of doing what you're doing, it, it probably was something meaningful. And it's, it's cool about your, your grandma and your mom, you know, my, my next question you've already really answered, but I, I wanted to kind of hear, uh, is food medicine. I think that's what a lot of people sometimes shy away from that conversation, medicine and food. But I think in your world, you're a, you know, you're a advocate that food is medicine. What do you think about that? And how do we kind of bridge that gap between medicine just being over here and food being over here? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, outstanding question. You know, if you think about it, we have this federal agency called the Food and Drug Administration. And um, so if you go to the Food and Drug Administration, you look at the list of the different departments within the Food and Drug Administration, you're trying to find an office to visit somebody. You've got those that are listed over here as food and you've got those that are listed over here as drug. And then they have different hierarchies and, and they have different administrative structures, different budgets, different importance, and they're sure. regulated in, in very different ways by different laws. Um, and that assumes clearly that there is a clear distinction between what a drug is and what a food is, as if there's really no overlap. But to think about this in, in the 21st century, the differentiation becomes a little bit more blurry. And the reason for it is if you think of what a definition of a drug is, a drug is an agent that modifies biological function in such a way that it can remediate a process that we call a disease. So that's a drug by my definition. Hmm. So now we think of, okay, well, what is, a, what is remediation of a process that we call a disease? What's that all about? In the extreme case, you might say, well, let's take a terminal disease like um, brain cancer. And we say, are there drugs that have been identified that can treat certain forms of brain cancer? And the answer is yes, with marginal efficiency, we have those drugs at the far edge of a terminal disease process. But if you get actually closer in and you look at disorders that are not in the terminal state, but are in a state that's less than healthy, so they would then be considered um, early stage diseases. These might be things like prediabetes rather than terminal brain cancer. And you ask, how do you treat that condition? You treat that condition with drugs like say metformin. And metformin is an agent that will modify the way that blood sugar is managed in your body and the way your insulin works in controlling it. Sure. And then you ask, are there other ways that you can control your blood sugar and your way that insulin works in your body that are not metformin, that are not necessarily new to nature molecules? I want to say that again, new to nature molecules that have been designed to, change, to do that process. And the answer is yes, there are clinical studies done demonstrating that there are diets that will do the same thing. 
And in fact, those diets can work as good or even better than that new to nature molecule. So now if that's factually correct, based upon clinical studies in patients that have that particular condition, and they've been demonstrated by the rigors of science to be true, then is the food a drug or is it something else? Because it's not just solely a food if you say that that condition is a disease and you just modified it. So I, like I call that. that biological response modifiers. Now, let me use one other um, example, which is, I think, on everybody's mind. So if you think about the first patent drugs that were developed for which um, the, the modern pharmaceutical medicine was born, they are antibiotics. Now, where did those antibiotics come from? They come from fungi, from soil organisms, that you extract these natural molecules from them, and you then give those natural molecules from those specific types of fungus or mold, and it treats a bacterial disease. So that's a drug called an antibiotic. Now, if you go historically back to cultures before we had the chemistry of antibiotics and the pharmaceutical science of antibiotics, there were cultures that were using mold to put on sores to treat infection. Now, were they treating it with a drug or were they treating it with a natural product that just happened to be in nature? And where does it become a drug? Right. Because it's a molecule that's in nature. So I think that these are really important concepts that make our understanding of what is a food and what is a drug much more fuzzy today than they were 100 years ago before we had this knowledge of science. And now when you go to the FDA and you see food and drug on the tablet of, of activities, you're not sure which door to go in. You might be hit by the door jam in between the two because it's not clear whether it's a food or a drug. When we talk about resveratrol, epigallocatechin, gallate from green tea, we talk about curcumin, we talk about resveratrol. I mean, all of these are products from plants that are now finding, being found to have extraordinary importance in modifying biological function in humans. Foods, medicines. And that kind of leads to, you know, you founded the Functional Medicine Institute in 1991. And, you know, I don't know a ton about functional medicine from the formality of it, but I, I looked up the term function and the term function is interesting to me. There's not a real good definition, but the, the meaning of function is performance. And so it was kind of interesting to me. You were talking in a couple other interviews about defensive me medicine and how it's all about low risk, not getting sued, what's worked in the past. But I, I think your definition of function is more of this offense and function sounds like it's about performance. And so when you founded the Functional Medicine Institute, what, what were you trying to do? Yeah, well, I think that's very insightful. I want to compliment you, Matt. I think that's, a, that's a, you really traced very nicely my thought process back in the late 80s. That's what led to um, us really promoting the concept of functional medicine. So. Uh, just to kind of almost reiterate what you've already said, uh, I followed the scientific literature pretty, pretty closely and have for over 40 years. I, I subscribe to over 80 journals and I consider myself a bibliophile. Uh, 
And um, so as I was following in the 70s and 80s, what was going on in, in medicine uh, and in science, medical science, I recognized that the term function, uh, because it had been used in, in healthcare to define two things. One, a functional disorder in medicine in the 70s and 80s, and even into the 90s, was considered a psychosomatic disorder. It was all in your mind. And it was kind of like um, <laughs> an artifact. It wasn't a real disorder. It was kind of just that you were confused and you had a hypochondriacal disorder. Sure. That was one term of function. The other term of function was applied to geriatric medicine, people who were disabled. And so they had a physical function disability. And so both of those were very limiting definitions of function. And when I proposed to my colleagues in, in 1989, when we were having our formational meetings for what later became the Institute for Functional Medicine, my colleagues said, Jeff, you know, function is, is I know you're, you're kind of thinking that's a good term, but actually it has a pretty negative connotation in medicine based on these previous definitions. And I said, well, that, that's true, but I'm following the medical literature. And what I'm starting to see is a redefinition of function. Now we have functional cardiology and we have functional radiology and we have functional endocrinology in which they're starting to use the term, not as these old ways of using it, as a new way of looking at process of how the body's process in these areas works. And to me, that's where the, the puck is going, to use the old analogy skate to where the puck is going. And so why don't we jump out and call ourselves the Institute for Functional Medicine? Now, in all uh, mea culpa reality, what happened over the years, as we evolved that model to now have over 200,000 physicians that have gone through our courses in functional medicine over the last now since 91, um, I had one of our functional medicine doctors come to me. This was probably 10 years ago now. And he said, Jeff, do you know that functional medicine is in the medical literature in the way that we're using it back in 1877? And I said, no, no, I, I'm unfamiliar with it. He says, yes, there is a lectures on functional medicine that appeared in the world-renowned Lancet Medical Journal magazine in 1877 by a well-recognized dean of medicine at one of the major medical schools in Britain. And he wrote a, a series of articles on what he called functional medicine, which if you read them, although they're in kind of the old English uh, style, they're almost exactly to what you've been saying for the last uh, 15 years. And it is true, shame on me, a guy who prides himself on knowing the literature, I had not found that article, and it does exist, and it is a recapitulation of what we've been teaching in a more modern form in the Institute for Functional Medicine. I mean, I, th I, th I think we've gone in circles of a lot of things, right? I mean, yeah. I'm going to talk about some diets in a second that just keep re renaming themselves, but maybe those are in a negative. This was a positive that existed and we evolved out of it and hopefully we're evolving back into it yeah, um, with exactly. your functional. And you know, what's, was interesting as I thought about function and I've heard you talk about this, the future of medicine in your opinion is to measure function versus measuring, do you have a disease? So right now, as everyone's fearful about COVID and our immune system, 
it's possible to measure the function of our immune system. It's possible to measure the function of our digestion. It's possible to measure lung function. And so, you know, talk, let's talk about the immune system and this idea that we can measure its function versus waiting for it to become a disease. What, what's the future there with function? I think you're doing a beautiful job of, of, of leading me down the trail here. Um, so when I ask people uh, a question like uh, when you've ha last had your medical evaluation, you had your blood taken and your physician reviewed your blood chemistry, one of the things I would presume that you probably had evaluated was the level of cholesterol in your blood. And um, so let, let me just ask a simple question. What disease can you think of that is caused by the level of cholesterol in your blood. In other words, is there a diagnostic code that is associated with a disease called high cholesterol? And the answer to that question is no. There is no disease for which cholesterol is known as the prodromal or as the principal cause. Cholesterol in your blood is a risk factor for associated disorders like vascular disease, heart disease, but it is not, it is not a diagnosis of the disease, right? <clears throat> and that's very different than the other things that you measure in your blood with a standard blood screen that are really more related to a diagnosis of a disease. So in the case of cholesterol in your blood, you're measuring a function that is associated with a risk to a disease. Now that's a very interesting concept because if you apply that concept, you would might ask, well, what happens if we had something in our blood screen that would tell us about the function of our immune system? Wouldn't that be just as important as understanding the function of risk associated with cholesterol in our blood for heart disease? And the answer is yes, it would, but we haven't spent much time as a culture thinking about our immune system. We just take it for granted, and it hasn't been the center of our attention. Well, it turns out, just to, to close this story, that if you look at a standard blood screen that you'd have done uh, by your physician, there's, there's two phases of that blood screen. And you might have had a couple of tubes of blood taking for your analysis. One would be your blood chemistry, things like cholesterol and glucose and um, sodium and potassium and certain things that are measured in your blood. And the other is called hematology, to measure the type of blood cells in your blood. How many red blood cells? How many white blood cells? What are the types of white blood cells? Are they neutrophils and monocytes, lymphocytes? Um, uh, eosinophils. That second part of a blood screen, which is measuring the type of blood cells, tells you something about your immune system. But I wonder how often a physician speaks to the patient about the level of those things that are in their blood that relate to their immune system if they're, quote, in the normal range. Do they ever then say, you know, your neutrophil level and your lymphocyte ratio is such and such, and that tells us a little bit about your, your, um, your immune system or the level of eosinophils in your blood. Uh, tells us maybe a little about uh, allergy, food allergies, or, or that you've got uh, some parasites. Do, do we talk about those things with patients? And I think the answer is no, because that particular physician is generally not an immunologist. And therefore, if they're within normal range, the doc will just say, well, they're, they're not diseased, so they must be fine. Rather than saying, well, let's take a deeper look at what their immune system is really doing. And I believe that we're in that stage now 
just like we were with the concept of cholesterol when it got put into the blood screen, where we're going to start using this information in a different way to assess function. And when we do that, it opens up all sorts of new ways of intervening before we get diseased, where we still can use lifestyle and simpler things to modify before we have to use hard-hitting drugs and surgery. So then that, that's that upstream medicine versus downstream waiting for the symptoms, the side effects, the diseases. Um, and I, you know, this, this was mind blowing to me. You talked about, um, or have you talked, you've, you've spoken about the immune cells being produced in the bone marrow. I, you know, that was somewhat new to me. I know I knew the immune cells were stored in the gut, but I didn't know that they were produced in the bone marrow can you kind of give the listeners the stats of how many of these cells are produced every 10 seconds or whatever the, the numbers are? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this talk is about where the immune system starts. Go ahead. It's, I think for a lot of people, this is an aha. Um, it's a good news, bad news story. Um, and I'll tell you why it's a good news, bad news story. So first let me tell this story and then I'll tell you why it's a good news, bad news story. Every cell in our blood, whether it's a red blood cell or a white blood cell, is produced in our bone marrow. Our bone marrow has these stem cells, they're called hemopoietic stem cells, that can be, that can create every other type of blood cell that we need from these stem cells. So our, our bone marrow is sitting there waiting to respond to our need. <laughs> and our need can be related to the environment we're in. Like let's say that we have the cold, if we have a cold, a normal inf uh, cold virus infection, then our immune system is going to be demanding of those cells coming out of our bone marrow that they be converted into certain kinds of blood cells that will fight that cold. And so it, uh, it sets up a communication between the bone marrow and a gland that sits at the base of our neck called the thymus gland to create a, a panel of different individual blood cell types that are gonna be effective, hopefully, for fighting the cold and eliminating it. Um, if we're injured, we may have a different need of different types of blood cells than we would need for a cold to defend us. And so the signal will go to the bone marrow, out comes those cells, they go to the thymus, and now a new set of blood cells go out into our body to, to fight the damage from an injury. Like inflammatory cells. Yeah, exactly. Cells. So what's the good and the bad part of this? The good part of this is that our immune system is regenerating itself very, very rapidly. And as you mentioned, every 10 seconds, we produce 1 million approximately. This is at state of rest. This is not when you've been injured or you have an infection, just a state of rest. You produce about 1 million white blood cells. You produce about 20 million red blood cells, and you produce 30 million platelet cells every 10 seconds. So ostensibly, over the course of a month, if you think about all that number of cells that are being produced over the month, your immune system is going to be regenerated, <laughs> which is really a good story. However, and this is where this, the bad news comes in, if your immune system remembers bad experiences and it has injured cells, it can then reproduce that injury. It can reproduce that bad information. And now you perpetuate by replacing those bad cells with more cells with the same memory, those things that are creating 
injury to you, bystander injury, as you said, inflammation. And that then leads to processes that are associated with virtually every disease, from dementia to heart disease to diabetes to cancer to arthritis. All of those are related to this immune system on guard that's kind of overworking and producing inflammation. So the good news is your immune system can replace itself. The bad news is it might, by uh, replacing that which already exists, just perpetuate some of the injury. So that leads us into the concept of you don't want to just support the immune system, you want to rejuvenate the immune system. And now we're learning um, just within the last 10 years about how the immune system can be rejuvenated, even in older age individuals, by creating the right environment that has those immune cells coming out of the bone marrow that are not already uh, imprinted with bad experiences. And they're ready to do young juvenile battle against offenders. That's a different. And just because you're talking about it, is there is there a couple that come off the top of your mind of um, strategies people can do to rejuvenate versus just replace or not necessarily replace replace the bad stuff? Because you're talking about rejuvenation versus support. Both are good, but rejuvenation is the key. Yeah, I think we certainly want to support the function of our immune system. So things like vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin C, um, uh, bioflavonoids. I mean, these are all very important part of zinc, the the trace mineral zinc. That's another one, selenium. These are all immune active nutrients that are important for support of the immune system. So I don't want to disregard that it's important to have healthy nutrition that supports the immune system. But in terms of the rejuvenation of the immune system, what we're learning is there are maybe certain subtypes of nutrients uh, and certain things within our lifestyle that are important for rejuvenating. One of the most remarkable discoveries, unexpected actually, comes from the uh, laboratories of Walter Longo at USC that I think most people are now familiar with, in in which he's been doing all these studies on fasting and the fasting mimicking diet, showing that um, by retardation of calories, in an appropriate type of program, that it doesn't just um, support an immune system, it actually uh, eliminates some of these damaged immune cells and allows them to be rejuvenated. And this occurs through a process that is given a highfalutin scientific name called autophagy. Autophagy means auto, it means it's happening automatically. Um, the, the phagic part of the word means self-eating. So you're eating up automatically damaged cells That's the process of autophagy, and it's activated, uh, immune autophagy is activated through this concept of uh, circadian eating, uh, time-restricted eating, of fasting, mimicking, dieting. These are new concepts you hear from people like uh, Sashananda Pandit Sok, who's written, uh, Matt Walker, who talks about sleep and circadian rhythms and how that all relates to rejuvenation of our immune system. So these are are we're learning old things in new ways, like sleeping well on a regular basis is good. Eating on a pattern that gives a spacing in between the last meal of the day and the first meal in the morning of at least 12 hours is a good thing. These are new things that we are learning from old understanding. I I call it ancient wisdom learned through new lens of modern science. Yeah, I mean, the autophagy is so fascinating. And, you know, as we do presentations, it's a common question. What do I think of intermittent fasting? What do I think of intermittent fasting? I think autophagy is fantastic. And I think that 12-hour fast, naturally with your circadian rhythm, whether you're done at 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., I think we try to hack 
And I'd love to hear your opinion on these isolated hacks of let's do this because the science says this. Um, there's old wisdom that we shouldn't be always doing sleeping, trying to give ourselves a space of rest of eating. Um, do you think people go a little bit too extreme in some of these principles that we're uncovering and know, and then maybe go a little bit too strict or focused on something like that? And in the case of intermittent fasting, where a lot of people don't know how to do it correctly, and then they go the opposite direction. Anything you'd yeah. share on that? Yeah, I think that um, I'm a big supporter of, of, of these biohackers that are kind of um, doing their own human experiments <laughs> because they really want to tune their body up to optimal function. So they're going the next mile. But I think what, what often happens in these situations is that individual experiences um, that one person may have again, then get transmitted to the general population at large in ways that loses um, the specificity, because not everybody really is a biohacker. Not everybody, you know, follows their body's function that closely and make, measures everything and, and makes this an experiment that's under controlled conditions because their body's an experiment and they're the experimentalist that's controlling it and they're approaching sure. life as if it was this controlled experiment. I think for those individuals that are pushing at that envelope, it's great to understand what they've done and to learn it from them, but we shouldn't all jump on the bandwagon immediately and say, oh, well, I'll just do the simple version of that. You know, I won't make those measurements. I won't be that controlled. I'll just do a little bit of the, An example of this to me, quite honestly, is the ketogenic diet. I think the ketogenic diet is an interesting concept. And for certain individuals, those with seizure disorders, for instance, this may be the preferable diet. For, as a general diet for all people, uh, and people that don't really understand exactly what they're doing, and they're just kind of hearing about it as a buzzword, and so they're throwing different things at it, and taking a lot of coconut oil, and, and doing, you know, not eating any carbohydrate at all, and uh, uh, those individuals can get themselves into trouble, and it's been seen that way, and there are reports now of all sorts of individuals that are uh, having adverse effects from a poorly um, applied uh, ketogenic diet. So I, I think we have to be very careful of extremism when we start to take some of these things that are um, kind of cutting edge concepts and, and how we apply them in our, in our lives of average people needs to be uh, evaluated very carefully. That's, that's beautiful how you said it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it comes down to specificity. You know, if you're a, a, a thoroughbred racehorse and you're, you're going to train a certain way, but if you're just the lay person that's not going to measure and just going to hear the headlines that, that might work, but in most cases it's going to have side effects. You talk about ketosis. I, I won't go too deep because I think you answered that beautifully. It serves a place. There's more to be looked at, but I have a saying, and we have a saying at On Target Living that if you cut out a macronutrient, and there's obviously micronutrients, but if you cut out a macronutrient, there's a huge potential to have macro problems down the road. And uh, I'd love to hear your take on, you know, sugar and carbohydrates are getting bashed, even though I think the word is being used incorrectly because we know carbs are sugars and sugars are carbs. People intend to mean processed sugar, but, you know, I was on a, a, a doing a, a program earlier and people don't eat fruit anymore. They don't eat anything that has a glimpse of sugar because of what they hear. What's your take on this macronutrient um, elimination concept that we've been trying to do for the last 50 years in different ways? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I'm going to be uh, speaking here as, as kind of a radical, so I know what I say might not be agreed by everybody, but I'll put it out there anyway, just for a bit. Uh, Love it. For a concept. So for decades, uh, nutrition scientists, nutrition researchers, and, and public health nutrition people have been talking about these macronutrients, as you just described, protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And they speak them of them in generic terms, carbohydrate, fat, and protein. So you see all these particular studies that have been done and put into the literature in which scientists have evaluated the effect of, of different percentages of macronutrients and their influence on, on human physiology. So you can say, uh, okay, well, gee whiz, is a high-protein diet better than a low-protein diet? Is a low-carbohydrate diet good or bad? Is... Uh, uh, is, is high fat or low fat better or good? And in, in these particular studies and in the discussion that follows, there has very rarely, and I'm talking about thousands and thousands of studies in nutrition that are published in the nutrition and medical literature that talk about these things that have never really clearly defined what are those proteins, carbohydrates, and fats that they've studied in their experiments. And what I tried to point out, this is, <laughs> this is like a, more than a 20-year uh, advocacy that I've had. I think I'm starting to be seen that my advocacy was not far off. It's not the difference in percentage among protein, carbohydrate, and fat that is the really important thing. It's what are the proteins, carbohydrates, and fats that occupy those percentages that's more important. So when we talk about carbohydrate, as you've already indicated, there's a whole range of different forms of carbohydrate, all the way from minimally to unprocessed, complex carbohydrate, fiber-rich, vitamin and phytochemical-rich plant carbohydrates that come from the cellulosic material from growing plants. That's one form of carbohydrate. And another form of carbohydrate at the other end of the experience is highly processed, crystallized, purified, 99.9% .9 sucrose. That's table sugar. That's also a carbohydrate. They all have presumably about four calories per gram. So you'd say, well, they're the same calorie content. So gee whiz, what's the difference? Well, the difference is like night and day. If I gave the same amount of sugar to an individual that I gave to in grams of those unrefined plant foods that contain the same amount of carbohydrate, and it measured their effect on their body, blood sugar, insulin, somatotrophic hormones, thyroid hormones, adrenal hormones, cortisol, I would get entirely different outcome, even though I called them both carbohydrate and they were equal in amount. I could do the same thing talking about fats, the difference between a saturated long chain fatty acid like palmitic acid versus a similar amount of highly unsaturated omega-3, EPA, and DHA, if I gave those same amount of fats in different forms to individuals, I get vastly different outcome in terms of their physiology. So we have filled the literature, literally filled it with data that's junk from which public health information is then generated for which people are then following those guidances saying, well, it's all in the literature. Yeah, it's in the literature filled with junk science. And, <laughs> yeah, and let me give one last example of this yeah, just so that we all, uh, this it. doesn't appear too blue sky and esoteric. It was not too long ago. I've been, I've been around in this field now over 40 years, long enough to see many things come and go. One of the things that came and went 
uh, of the many, was that we should get away from eating fat. And uh, this kind of came out of the Pritikin revolution of the 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And so we went through a period of time where the food processing industry said, hey, we can actually sell more food if we start making processed foods without fat. But when you take fat out, you got to put something back in. You can't have nothing or it wouldn't be food. So what do you put back in? Well, protein is expensive and we don't want to have to add too much protein. So you can't make all up the difference by taking fat out by giving protein. So that leads carbohydrate. Okay. So what did the food industry start to do? They said, well, gee whiz, um, if we just put like high fiber carbohydrate in there, that's going to be not so palatable. That won't really magically enlist the taste buds of every consumer child to adult. So we better start putting really uh, that kind of uh, carbohydrate in there that really enlists uh, addiction or at least uh, habituation and that's sweet. So we started then filling our foods, as you know, uh, snack wells and all sorts of different foods, taking out fat and putting in simple carbohydrate sugars. And what happened? We had an epidemic of obesity. We had an epidemic of diabetes. So this was based upon solid science, right? <laughs> Taking out fat and putting in carbohydrate. Well, it was absolutely like an experiment gone awry. It was an experiment enlisted on the whole American public to then make the drug industry, quite honestly, very happy because they now had all sorts of reasons for blockbuster new drugs to treat the outcome from very bad nutritional public uh, recommendations. So th this is, uh, then, then what happened is, of course, the pendulum swings and it swings very fast. So then people said, oh, it's that carbohydrate that's killing us. So now it's take all the carbohydrate out when it's, it's really a very important part of our energy economy. Our mitochondria needs time-release carbohydrate in order to produce energy. It doesn't live just off protein and fat. It needs carbohydrate as well. In the right form, in the right delivery system, which is called minimally processed, high complex carbohydrate, fiber, vitamin, mineral, and phytochemical rich plant foods. That's how we get it. Yeah. And then you talk about phytochemicals, flavonoids, uh, these, these micronutrients that we're really deficient on. And so if we, if we just continue to get so obsessed with counting macros and minimization, it, it really, what I hear you and what we teach is it's the quality, yeah. you know, quantity is important. Quality is what, how the cells function. It's how your immune system functions. It's how our biology system functions. So we, we try to do this in this nu nutrients equal nutrients. The truth is it's about food. And I think, you know, my sister is a registered dietitian and she just has a different take on this, a different tone. And she talks that we don't eat nutrients, we eat food. And when we get so focused on nutrients, we miss kind of that power. And I know you're, you love studying food and knowing it, but like you're saying, it's the quality and, and it's different between, uh, you know, maybe a plant that's minimally processed and that same plant that turned into Applejack cereal or whatever down the road. Yeah, that's well, that's. Well, let me respond ahead. to you because I think what you just said is, uh, I think what you and your sister both have said is right on target. And there is a concept that uh, that I've been advocating now again for more than twenty years that I I think has started to really catch on, and I hear more and more people talking about it. 
We don't actually eat food. We eat information. Food is information to our genes. This is a major breakthrough. This has given birth to the, the field called nutrigenomics, nutrition and genes, how they interface. That our food contains signals in the way that we eat, those nutrients that are found as part of our food. And those signals go in and they influence and speak to our genes in such a way to influence their expression, which influences their function, which then ultimately over years of eating shapes how we look at and feel. It's a very powerful new framing of nutrition that gives us a lot more control over how we look at and feel based upon the information that we give our genes through our diet. This is I a love that. powerful love new that. concept. Yeah, I love that. Our, our, we eat information. Well, let me talk about a couple, uh, you know, superfoods we love. And I know that uh, you have um, you've studied these, but we love talking about omega-3s and specifically um, fish oils like uh, cod liver oil. T talk about your research on um, marine lipids and why you gravitated towards really the, the cod liver oil specifically. Yeah, thank you. You know, life, uh, as we know, as they, as they say, life is what happens in between our plans. So we, we set our plans up and then the reality of life happens and then we're, we move in different directions. So that was certainly the case for me in my career over the, over the last uh, 40 plus years. And the, the part of the cod liver oil part of my story is, is really one of those illustrations of things I would have never expected. So um, just quickly what happened to me in 1970 when I started as a, as a professor uh, and I had my first graduate student and we started getting into this whole nutrition area. It was not too long after that I got um, approached by a company that was then uh, marketing in the United States the first uh, omega-3 fish oil supplement called Maxipa. And they asked uh, us if we uh, would do research on it in humans in our, in our laboratory, which we started to do. That then led me into becoming kind of an early stage um, devotee of omega-3 fatty acids. And that actually got me uh, giving lectures to physicians and early on talking about the difference between omega-3 fatty acids and other families like omega-6s or uh, omega-9s like olive oil, oleic acid, or, or saturated fats, animal fats. Um, over the years then, because of the length of time from the middle 70s to now, I've stayed fairly close in touch with this whole field. And uh, it was, by happenstance then that I was up uh, in Alaska because uh, boating is uh, one of our family hobbies and we had traveled up from Seattle in our boat to Alaska and I was on the dock up in Sitka and this beautiful fishing boat came in and new, it was nicely painted. And it was very different than any fishing boat that I'd seen up there. And so I got very intrigued with it and I was talking to the crew and the, the skipper said, well, gee whiz, you, you have a lot of interest. You know, the, the owner of this, uh, this boat is coming in soon. He owns several of these boats. He's the designer. He's a, actually a kind of an engineer that's developed these boats, you might want to speak to him. So I got talking to him when he flew in the next day, and it turned out that he had designed a way of, um, of fishing that was unique up there, which each fish was caught on a line and hook, uh, and they were brought in uh, to the boat. There was no, nobody up on the decks of the boat. They were all inside. So the fish were brought in on the line and hook, and they were taken off the, the hook, and then they were processed immediately on board, and then they were... Um, frozen within 20 minutes at minus 10 degrees to completely capture the, the uh, quality of freshness. And 
it was a very different way of, of fishing because most of the time the fish are thrown into a hold with ice and then they're kept there for several days as the fish are, are being caught and then they go to a processing plant later and they've had an opportunity over those days of degrading somewhat. So this was a producing a really high quality fish, uh, fish product that he sold in to high-end markets, uh, high-end restaurants. And uh, so I was very impressed with that. And he said, but we have one problem. And that is that I've um, advocated over the years that I've been doing this, that we should be in Alaska uh, producing a sustainable fishery. So I got all these fishing companies together and, and it was a little bit of a tough job, but we eventually decided that we should go to the, to the federal government and we should elect to, to produce a sustainable fishery by setting limits for catching that would be based upon the recommendations from the national fisheries as to what would be a sustainable catch. And then we would be allocated our catch so that we wouldn't overfish. Well, believe it or not, these fishermen all finally decided maybe that was in the best interest of their sustaining business, not to overfish as contrasted to the North Atlantic where they didn't have those regulations. And you know what happened there with the decimation of the fisheries like the cod fishery. So they then set these standards in place and he says to me, this was really a good thing because now we have a sustainable fishery. But the bad thing is we have a controlled number of fish we can catch. So our business can't really grow. So for us as a business owner, then the question is, how do we get the maximum value out of those fish so that every part of the fish can have value? So we won't throw anything away. And right now we're throwing away back into the water about 20% of the fish that we can't find a market for. And I said, oh, really? Well, what part of the fish are you throwing away? And he said, well, we're throwing away the fish guts. And then being a chemist, I, I naively said to him, I said, well, what's in your fish guts? And he looked at me. Now, he's a, a marine engineer, right? And he looks at me and goes, what do you mean what's in it? I said, like, what are the like, chemicals in there, like the natural materials? He said, uh, Jeff, I'm, I'm not a chemist. I wouldn't know what's in those fish guts. And hmm. I said, well, why don't you send me some of your frozen fish guts. I have a lab and let's see what's in them just for the heck of it. So little, lo and behold, you know, be careful what you ask for in life. So I, I asked him that question only to have my lab people call me up about three weeks later saying, uh, Jeff, we have this truck that's uh, offloading several hundred pounds of frozen fish guts. Oh my gosh. It was like a hundred grams. Yeah. And what do we do with these things? So that was a funny story in itself, but eventually we found out what to do with them. And we, we did the analysis and I found there were all sorts of interesting uh, substances um, in, the, in these fish guts that could be extracted under mild conditions that could be of value in, in nutrition. Um, one of those was the recognition that about 10% of the weight of these, these fish was occupied by the liver. And in the liver of these fish was found fairly high levels of vitamin A and D as well as a unique family of, of uh, essential fatty acids, including EPA, DHA, and DPA. But then we also made a discovery, which was groundbreaking. We found there was another family of bioactive nutrients there that we could uh, find that you normally could not have found because they would have been lost um, by the degradation of the normal process of fishing. Only through this process of, of freezing uh, so rapidly were they, uh, were they collected and these are called pro-resolving mediators. They are a family of, of uh, fats uh, that are made by the animal, uh, their immune system actually, that regulate inflammation. They're multiple times more anti-inflammatory than the fish oils themselves. In fact, 100 times more. 
and they are we found them in our oils in reasonably significant concentration it had never been seen before and so we said wow we have now a new forum of cod liver oil that's probably never been seen unless you're eating the liver right out of the fish that's just been caught that has all the preservation of all this full orchestration of nutrients so i said you know rather than throwing your stuff in the water back in the water why don't we set up a pharmaceutical plant to to get these out of the uh, the livers and we'll form a new kind of um, dietary supplement fish oil that has never been seen before that has all these types of uh, uh, characteristics so that became then uh, the adventure of he and I working collaboratively to build this plant in Dutch Harbor Alaska the first ever pharmaceutical plant out in the Aleutian Islands um, that then produces this unique oil so that that's the cod liver oil story yeah your your uh, boating trip turned into something pretty pretty amazing and you know you talk about the pre-resolving mediators and how no other uh, marine lipid really has these pre-resolving mediators. And this is a new um, discovery. So, yeah, we, I mean, I think the, as we could talk about this on and on and on, those, those are amazing uh, findings that I think really can help people, especially as our food system, as you've talked about, uh, gets defeated and, and deflated from some of the nutrients. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and I, I want to, you know, be conscious of your time. Um, CBD oil, you're a nutritional scientist. You've seen a lot of things over the years come and go. What, what's kind of your opinion on CBD oil? Um, and kind of why is everyone so crazy about the medicinal properties of cannabidiol oil? Well, I think that this whole um, exploration of the cannabinoid family, now that we've kind of gotten over some of the stigma, stigma of uh, THC, you know, which was a Schedule Three drug and considered to be addictive and dangerous, and uh, I'm talking about the uh, the the psychogenic activity of cannabis. Um, those those uh, delta six tetrahydrocannabinol uh, compounds. We've kind of gotten over the stigma that was associated with it for years and years. It retarded the research about them, and then that opened up the opportunity to look at the family of other cannabinoids other than just delta six and delta nine THC. Um, which include things like uh, CBD, cannabidiol. And what was found is that cannabidiol has a, a very different biological activity. It doesn't produce the hallucinogenic or psychoactive effects. It does um, the Delta-6 and Delta-9 THC. But it has very unique effects across a range of important functions of the body um, that are related to immunological functions and to, once again, stabilizing uh, aspects of immune function. And that work then on CBD has opened up a whole new chapter in the importance of, uh, of these compounds that interact with a series of receptors in our body called the endocannabinoid receptors. The endocannabinoid receptors, which sit on the surface of, of our cells, our, our tissues, particularly on the gastrointestinal tract, also on the lungs, on the surface, these uh, endocannabinoid receptors um, pick up uh, information from specific molecules. And because they're called endocannabinoids, that means these molecules can be produced by the body's native process. Uh, anantamide is one of those particular molecules that our body makes to activate these endocannabinoid receptors that produces um, alteration in uh, the function of our immune system and our aspects of our central nervous system. So 
the process of mood, the process of appetite, the process of aspects of immunological response are tied to the regulation of these endocannabinoid receptors, which are then controlled by the production of these endogenous or bodily produced substances like anatomine. What we now start to see is that the cannabinoids that come from plants also obviously interact with these endocannabinoid receptors in different ways. And so we have endocannabinoid, the so-called CB1 receptors and CB2 receptors, and now other receptors are being um, uh, discovered, which are exploited by these um, molecules like cannabidiol. So cannabidiol has an opportunity to have effects on our body very different than the um, psychoactive cannabinoids, but very important for kind of stabilizing functional reserve of our mood and our immune system in ways that could be very beneficial for people who have disturbances in those systems. And the nice thing about the CBD, because it doesn't work on the same receptors that are associated with uh, psychoactive effects uh, as our Delta-6 and Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, they then can influence at fairly low levels of intake, just normalization of function and kind of giving us more reserve and resilience. So I think this is opening up a whole new chapter in phytobotanical physiology and phytobotanical medicine that takes us away from the concept of um, psychoactive hallucinogenic products and takes us back into normalization of function. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's a it's a, an amazing alternative in medicine, and and you know one of one of our stances on it is you know might be a great option, and there might be some more options before it, but you know the, the opportunity and uh, world of it. There's, I mean, as you're talking about the CB2 and CB2 CB1 receptors, there's a lot of positivity coming out of it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, I could spend all day talking to you about all this stuff, but as, as we know, it's not always what you know. You talked about the 1970 article about vitamin E that you're getting the tabloids, but <laughs> it, comes, it comes down to what you do. And, you know, in our world where I don't think we're really taught on some of the basics or some of the, you grew up with a mom that learned from her mom of how, you know, maybe we don't have to go to the traditional medicine route that led to this career that you, you know, have devoted your life to. What would you teach a fifth grade class on nutrition, very basic, that you think would really help them long-term to develop some of these habits? Yeah, I think, thanks, Matt. That's a really great question. And, and um, it, it, when you said it, it reminds me of a little anecdote that I'll share quickly from an experience that I had with a group of elementary school kids in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. This would have been back in the 1980s. And I was doing quite a bit of traveling around lecturing to different groups. And um, in this particular experience, I was lecturing to medical school professors, but they had their kids in daycare that was a daycare provided by the medical school. And so the parents asked me, which were the faculty, researchers, clinicians at the medical school, they said, would you be willing to go to the daycare? And it wasn't daycare, it was like an elementary school, and speak to the kids, there are kids about nutrition. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. So I went down there and I thought, well, geez, I better have a prop. I better have something visual that I could use. Because so, these were kids that were um, four, uh, three, and four, three, four, and five years of age. 
they were all sitting on the floor on their, you know, their legs akimbo. And I thought, well, I only got their attention probably for a very short period of time. So what am I going to do? So I decided I would take a banana and a box of Fruit Loops. And my concept was to try to get them to think about the difference because Fruit Loops was fruit, right? Fruit Loops, supposedly. A banana is fruit. What's the difference between the two? So I held them up and I said, so here's a banana. This is fruit. And here is Fruit Loops, a breakfast cereal. Can you help me understand what the difference in nutrition is between these two? And this little guy raised his hand. He probably was like four years old. And I said, yes, what is the difference? He says, well, the difference is obvious. That banana is spelled F-R-U-I-T, and that cereal is F-R-O-O-T. We all know the difference. <laughs> That's great. So what it embodied to me was the recognition <laughs> that we need kids to understand that every cell that makes up every tissue, that makes up every organ, that makes up their whole body, that makes up who they are, comes only from the food they eat. It only comes from the food they eat. There is no other way to get a molecule into your cells that makes you up, that doesn't come from something you've eaten and how that gets processed by your that's, body. That's so if the, you, unbelievable. If you, if you think of an F-R-O-O-T, which they change the spelling to protect the innocent versus an F-R-U-I-T, one feeds the body, the other feeds the economy. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I suffered from ADHD and dyslexia and, and I didn't do well in school. And, you know, part of it was what I was eating. Part of it was how I was moving and I didn't go that traditional route. And so that, that really resonates with me. I think that's <laughs> so important. Um, I think that'd be a cool thing to teach kids and I, I love that question for my interview guests, especially for someone like yourself, who the depth of knowledge you have, you know, what would you, what would you shrink it down to, to a fifth grader? And um, I love that. So thanks for your time today. This has been fantastic. Maybe we'll do this again. Cause there's so many other questions I'd love to ask you, but um, thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. And to our listeners, I think you've heard some depth here of why the human body our cells, our immune system, our biology is so amazing. And uh, nutrition, like Dr. Bland said, is, is uh, we eat information. And that information can be so powerful. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And just anyone that wants to follow up, we have a whole plethora of videos and materials you can download on our website, which is uh, very simple. It's www.jeffreybland.com. And uh, the, a person can, uh, they can spend a lot of hours if they want to uh, going through this information. They can get a PhD from all your videos. There's some <laughs> exactly. really good stuff out there. Well, thanks so much. 